I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Two Cups of Tea. I'm Chris Heath, and I've got the best job in podcasting, because I get to stick the kettle on, open a packet of biscuits, and listen to another fascinating life story from an older legend. Today, it's the turn of Linda Jackin Werlein. I've travelled to Greece to meet her, where she's been living for several years with her fourth husband, Hal. She's a beguiling storyteller with a roller coaster of a life story. Born in 1944 in the USA, she was raised in a place called Daylight, Tennessee. Her father was a fire and brimstone preacher, and they started out in a two-room shack next to a snake-filled creek. I'm not making this up. From here came a turbulent upbringing, four wildly different husbands, admission to an Ivy League university, and even a short stay in a psychiatric hospital. It is true, there's no such thing as an ordinary life. Okay then, I'll go in and set up the microphones, you listen to the theme tune. Let's do this. I was born in 1944. So where was this? I was born in Texas. My family lived in Texas until I was five years old. And then we moved to Tennessee because Daddy said he had been called by God to preach. And he had been called to go to Tennessee. I don't know why. And um, I think Daddy took us to a God-forsaken place because God wasn't there and he needed to be, I suppose. We went to a place called Daylight, Tennessee. Daylight? Daylight. And it was a a great name. (laughs) I don't know why they called it that, but it was one store with gas pumps in front and kerosene for sale and um, feeds and grains and the post office and groceries, Mm. shoes, everything was in that store. And there was a tree growing through the roof. Of the store, of the yeah, general store. Yeah, a large tree growing through the roof. And I was always uh, fascinated by that when I was a kid. I couldn't figure out how it got there then. <laughs> so, and this is in daylight, the town in Tennessee that your father had the calling to go to. Right. It's not a town. It was a store and all that stuff. Oh, so it was one store and some houses. Right. My aunt and uncle lived there, an uncle who was already a preacher, but he... Uh, he and my daddy disagreed on, on which was the right uh, denomination to be. Sure. And so they, but that was a place where we could go because we had no money and we had to stay with them. And they lived in a, a, a little two room house shack, you know, no electricity, no running water, no plumbing. And so they were a family of, they were a family of five. We were a family of, of uh, well, I had four. I had three siblings at that time, so we were a family of six. So let's do a roll call of the siblings. Okay. So who was so who was that? My well, my oldest brother was Dave. Yeah. And my second oldest, Don, and then there was Earl, and then me. When I was sixteen, so you were literally brother, yeah. But when I was sixteen, a younger brother came along. Ah. And so, that's good. It's nice to have someone to boss around. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was already gone by that time. We'll get to that. Oh, okay. <laughs> but my uncle, um, uncle, we called him Curly. Uncle Curly and Aunt Addie had um, had three sons and a daughter also. Mm. So that was 
Oh, that's a family of six. So 12 of us were meant to be in these two rooms uh, until we could find housing for ourselves. And so it was it was crowded. I think my aunt and uncle were rather cross that we piled in on them like that. Crowded sounds like an understatement. <laughs> <That> was... <laughs> well, some slept in the car, you know, sometimes. Yeah. And, yeah. There was a creek across the road where we had to go to get water, dip a bucket in the spring, you know, and pull up a bucket of water. It was a shallow little creek. And my cousin Marie, who was maybe three years older than I, yeah. um, her job was to go and fetch the water. And I went with her one day, I remember. She dipped the bucket and came up with a snake in it. Oh, and, God. Yeah. And she threw it back in the water and went home screaming with no water. And my Uncle Curly said, where's the water? She said, there was a snake, Dad. And he <laughs> said, where's the bucket? And she said, I threw it in the water. <laughs> and he said, go back and get that bucket. And so she had to go wading in the water, chasing down the bucket. Oh, my God. <laughs> I stood on the bank and watched. I didn't help. Well, do you know what? I think, you know, the, the, from a self-preservation point of view, I'm glad you didn't get bitten by a snake. Me you know, too. Otherwise, yeah. you wouldn't be here now telling the story. <laughs> so, you know, someone there always has to be a survivor right. to, to set the record straight. That's right. That's how history is written. Mm. So how old were you when you moved there? Five. So you were five when you went to daylight into the into your uncle Curly's yes. shack? Yes, right. Um, is that Was that a fair description? I mean, did you say... It was a shack. It was it a was shack. One of those old, unpainted... You know, uh, boards that are all gray and everything. It had a little porch, like a lean-to, with uh, a roof, tin roof over it. And so the water you would get from the creek every day when you could avoid the snakes was mm-hmm. was all the water that was, that the, was, water. That was yes. the water. Yes, and there was an outhouse. We had lamp light with kerosene lamps. Mm. And so then when Daddy found a house that we could live in, because this woman's husband had gone off to the Korean War, and she had to move out. And so we moved into her house while she was away. And Daddy built a brush arbor across the road from the house. What's that? Uh, A brush arbor. Yeah. (laughs) It's what they used to have in, in the old days that they used for services, for church. And... So basically, you clear a spot, a little spot of land in a wooded area, mostly, yeah. and um, then you take have four trees that you can pretty much have in something of a square, mm. and over um, then you put chicken wire over the top of that, or some sort of wire that will hold branches, and you fasten it to those trees, and then you pile all the brush and branches on top, and it's a shelter to keep out the rain. But oh, wow. Of course, there's nothing on the sides, so rain comes in anyway. But, mm. I mean, it's just a shelter. Then you put planks over these stumps to make benches. Mm. So people sat there, and he preached hell and fire and brimstone. So when you yeah. say hellfire and brimstone, do you mean the kind of oh. slightly angry, you know, preaching or preaching, crying, yelling, shaking, fist in the air, people jumping up and dancing in the aisles under the spirit, uh, real holiness, holy roller stuff. Although we weren't, we didn't like the term holy rollers, but it was Pentecostal holiness in its full meaning, mm. and people would. Uh, there was also a, a bench in front with stumps and boards. <laughs> that Daddy had made a little makeshift stage, you know, just boards. Mm. And <laughs> he was on that and with a little little uh, post with a board that he could put his Bible on when he was preaching. And he played guitar, too. So, so he would play guitar, and everyone would sing very lustily and... and um, it was quite a rousing, rousing thing. Mm. It was. And this was still in daylight, wasn't it? Yes. And so there were, I mean, were they big congregations? Was it like every, was it everyone came, presumably? Well, yeah, but there were, it was a very sparse population. Mm. Not everyone came. Some people who were really horrible sinners didn't want to be saved. <laughs> <laughs> and so they kind of stayed away. But... A lot of people did come. He would fill up the benches. So, mm. And we lived off the offering, what was put in the plate. 
during the, you know, sure. and people didn't have very much at all. So there wasn't a lot of money, but sometimes people would give us eggs or chicken or, or part of their pig. I mean, once it was dead. Yeah. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, we, we managed, but it was, it was hard. So when he wasn't, you know, being, you know, the centre of the community and the, the fire and brimstone preacher, what was, what was your, your father's name? My father's name was Joseph, Joseph Watts. Um, and, but everybody in the family, I mean, his, my mother's family and his family, mm. called him Tut, a nickname he got when he was very little. Tut. Tut. My mother called him JB when she was speaking to other people. Mm. With us, she said, Daddy. Yeah. And what was she like? My mother was, she was very submissive. My mother had no power in the relationship whatsoever. Right. And, uh, well, Daddy talked to God directly, and God talked to him directly, and how could, my mother couldn't possibly just do that. She was, that sounds like she was outranked. <laughs> she was. But she was, she was very kind. She was... Uh, I think she believed in him. I think she believed in what he was doing. But um, it was very tough for her because Daddy wouldn't take a job. He said it would show a lack of faith in God. Mm. He would say, God knows we're here and he'll provide. And I, my brother and I turned that to <laughs> God knows we're here. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love a useful comma. <laughs> yeah, but because um, there were times when we had no food and um, we had no uh, money, you know, it was one of those times when people would get, we did have a car mm. and uh, Daddy needed that for his, quote, ministry. Um, I remember one time when we came home from school, my, I had started school at because my birthday's in November. Mm. And so we came home from school and there was nothing in the house to eat, nothing. You know, you got 400 kids coming home from school. That night for dinner, there was still no food. And Daddy said to her, Now, Mama, I want you to set the table just like we had a feast. He said, put out all the plates, all the silverware. You put bowls on the table just like there was something in it. And she did, although she looked like it wasn't something she wanted to do. Yeah. But she did. And we kids were all standing around kind of like, is something going to fill up the bowls? Is it going to be magic <laughs> or, or not? And couldn't quite believe that that would happen. But we all had to sit down. He said a long prayer, talking, basically, I think, talking to all of us, mm. but <laughs> um, about how God knows we're here. He'll take care of us. We're not going to starve and, and um, all this stuff, you know, and, mm. and you know, we believe in you, God. And so we sat there for a while, <laughs> and the bowls and plates remained empty. <laughs> My brother and I have, as adults, thought, what would have happened? What would he have done? What would Eddie have done yeah. if the bowls started to fill with food? <laughs> and I don't know how this happened, but the next day, somebody came to our house with a pickup truck and backed it up to the porch, and it was just full of food. They brought all kinds of foods, you know. Bags this was the of next flour. day. Yeah. And um, I've always wondered, did my daddy say something to somebody in the community or what? I don't know. But he uh, thought it was a miracle, and mm. we were just thrilled. We were happy because there was all kinds of good stuff in there mm. that we could eat for a long time. But then forever after, he would tell, the, and I said something like, oh, my, this is the best meal we've ever had. He told that story in the pulpit until I was grown, and I used to cringe. You know? mm. 
went to school at a little, uh, that was a two-room school with a kitchen where they cooked hot lunch. Oh, really? Yeah, for all the people. And I remember one day the cook um, was making a big pot of pinto beans, which for us was like rice in China. We mm. always, everybody ate pinto beans, main staple. And it was in a pressure cooker, and the pressure cooker blew up, and there were beans all over the ceiling and the walls. They either would be <laughs> pressure cookers. Oh, my God. <laughs> I remember how we all thought that was so exciting. It's so great. The pressure cooker blew up. I beans everywhere. you got to go in there and see that. There's beans on the ceiling. And so... I, I quite like the idea of just... just <laughs> beans are ready. <laughs> <laughs> there was a woman in the community called I'm sure she's dead now <laughs> her name was Molly Gooch Molly Gooch <laughs> nobody could help her doctors didn't know what was wrong with her she'd just been bed fast for years mm. Daddy heard of her, and he went over. He went over and said he was going to pray for her, and he prayed for her, and she got out of bed. And my my belief is that Molly was just depressed, that <laughs> that life was boring around there, mm. and and uh, I think that she was cheered by having this kind of attention because she yeah. got up, and then she became a star, <laughs> because she had been raised up from the sick bed mm. by God through my father's work. And so <laughs> Molly Gooch then got, she got trotted out. He would take her places and show off, and she would tell her story. So he got a following, you know. And <laughs> and um, So she was his greatest success. Oh, at that point, she was his greatest success, mm. yeah. And so, you know, years passed like this. And we would every now and then have to go back to Texas, and he would he would work at something for a year, and then mm. we'd go back to Tennessee. So we were back and forth a lot. He sounds like a, a, a huge personality. Oh, he was. Dominated everything in our lives. And uh, he was not a kind man mm. with his family. It was toe the line or else, and don't make him mad. You know, Do everything he says. Mm. Don't talk back about the criticism. So as a result, we kind of grew up feeling no self-esteem and no self-confidence, you mm. know. And it was it was tough when I got older. It was very Sounds tough. tough. Yeah. Did you have strong belief in 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 the Word of God? As I grew older, I really had a lot of questions. Mm. When I was about, I guess maybe, yeah, I was like fifteen, so I was already married, and so. And so um, <laughs> Daddy used to talk all the time about when he gets to heaven, he's going to walk up and down the streets of gold. He's just going to hug everybody's neck. He's going to love everybody. Mm. And at that time in the South, there was still a lot of division between black people and white people. Yeah. And um, we never were, we were not taught that um they were inferior. We never would say the N-word. Daddy always said colored, so we grew up saying colored. Mm. And, um, but uh, I remember asking him one day when he was saying that, I said, Daddy, are you going to hug a black person's neck too? <laughs> or a colored person? Mm. <laughs> and he said, oh, honey, there's not going to be any, any colored people in heaven. And I said, what? And he said, no, they're all going to be white. He said, black is a curse, and it's going to be removed when they get down there. All going to be white. And <laughs> I thought oh, so that they was, will go to heaven, but they'll be yes, made white. Yes, but they'll be made white when wow. they're in heaven. So as an adult, I had a very dear uh, African-American friend, and I told her that story one time, and she looked at me and said, honey, Waking up white one morning is not my idea, heaven. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. So by this point, you're 15. Did you say you were married? Yes. 
Okay. The day after my 15th birthday, Daddy had been on a 30-day fast. He wanted to go 40 like Jesus, but he didn't quite make it. So, <laughs> oh, so close. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Another 10 Just days. Just 10 days from divinity. <laughs> oh. But anyway, he thought um, I should marry this. I did have a crush on this boy at that time. Mm. Same was Joe. And he and his family came to our church. But then we're out of Brush Harbors and we're in a building. But I liked him a lot. And I was 14 mm. at the time. And I was, you know, just Google eyes and like kids are. And he used to sit behind me in church. And then when it got to be better known that Linda likes Joe and Joe likes Linda, you know, he was, he moved up to sit on the same bench as I would, was eventually got over to sit beside me on the same bench, mm. you know. And so uh, we were then, we were really, it was a public thing, people knew. Mm. But um, he was a good guy. He was very country, and he wasn't well educated. He had, I think, had gone to seventh grade. But um, Daddy decided that Joe and I should get married. And my mother said, oh, no, she can't marry at 14. <laughs> She said she has to be at least fifteen. So, so was that the law, or was that just? No, no, it was still too young to marry. Daddy had to go to a courthouse, and Joe's too, because Joe was, Joe was three years older than I, so he was seventeen when we were mm. courting, sitting on the same bench, and then he was eighteen when we got married. Mm. We, but his father and mine had to go to the courthouse when we got the license and sign consent for us to marry because we were too young. Right. So, um, how, did so you that, feel, how did you feel about this? Did you want to marry? I thought it was, I thought it was just exciting. You know, I, I, had a, I had a friend who was married, Edith, and I thought, wow, she was like my girlfriend. We used to sit in the car and talk because that's the only privacy. Mm. And then, um, so we... We got married, and it was exciting until that day. And then, until the day of the ceremony. Well, no, after the ceremony. Right. After the ceremony, uh, I think I immediately knew I wasn't in love with him. <laughs> you know, after. Wow, that's a that's a bombshell to <laughs> it is, to, to realize. Yeah. Because after we had gone out, he asked Daddy if we could have the car go for a drive. And so then it was like, you're mine, I can do what I want. And and so I didn't love that. And I didn't love him anymore after that. No. But we were together for about four years. Mm. And, uh, and we had a child. When I was 19, my son was born. Yeah. And uh, so that was a really good thing that came out of that marriage. Of course. Yeah. And what was your son's name? Jonathan. Jonathan. Yeah. That's a good name. It is a good name. From the Bible. Yeah. Jonathan. I always think that sounds like a solid name, dependable name, Jonathan. Yes, it is. <laughs> He's a dependable man and a good, solid man with a wonderful family. Good. Yeah. So Jonathan's born. Yes. And you and Joe finished after about four years, is that right? Yes. Uh, we divorced... Um, after four years, mm. yeah, and Jonathan was still a baby, like nine months old at the time. Mm. And uh, of course, my divorce was frowned upon by everybody. Daddy said I had embarrassed his ministry. <laughs> he kept calling his work his ministry. Mm. No one in our family had ever been divorced before. And uh, but you know, I didn't care. I had I had not been allowed to go to school after I married. They wouldn't let people who were married go to school. I don't know why. But that sounds crazy, doesn't I it? I know. So I had only finished the um, eighth grade, and I've gone halfway through the ninth grade. Mm. And so I had very little education. Um, I got a job as a waitress, mm. and uh, I was making. 
uh, $20 a week plus tips. And I didn't get many tips because this was a this was a restaurant inside a department store. It's called a tea room, the mm. Madison Tea Room. And women who were shopping would come and have lunch. You know. And I wanted to get a divorce, but I didn't know how or what. And there were some girls uh, working there who were a little more worldly than I, <laughs> who had been divorced and had been around a bit. And so I had talked to them and said I was very unhappy mm. with my marriage and I really wanted to divorce they said, well, come on in here, honey. <laughs> and we went back in the in the kitchen and got the telephone book. I said, look here, we're going to lawyers. And I said, well, I can't get to one because, you know, I don't have a car and stuff. And so um, I said, well, just we'll look at the addresses and find the one that's closest here so you can walk. So we found one. Mm. And I walked to his office and I told him my story mm. and that I wanted a divorce. And I gave him my $20 and my whole week's pay. And he gave me back a dollar so I could take the taxi back to work. Wow. It wouldn't be late. Yeah. But he took my case. I think he realized, you know, that I had, that it was, it's really abusive mm. to do that sort of thing, I think. I had learned, one of the things I learned from Mama when I was growing up was a woman can't make it on her own. She has to have a man. You know, women just can't get along in this world. They have to have, to have a man. Mm. And you have to be married if you're going to have a man. So um, it's important to be married. Mm. Other, and and so um, I went uh, I went back to Texas because, and I borrowed bus there to go to Texas because there was a girlfriend there that I had um, I had gone to school with in the sixth grade mm. and we'd kept in touch and she had just gotten a divorce so I was going to go there we were going to get jobs and Jonathan stayed with my mother and father at that time mm. and when I went out we didn't get jobs and we were we were just broke I mean after our initial funds ran out we and of course, we'd been going out at night as well, and that mm. was new to me, going to nightclubs and <laughs> having a beer. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but, that must have been a real awakening. Oh, yeah. But then I married. I met, I met this guy that I married after knowing him two weeks because I was just hungry and lost and didn't know what to do anymore. You yeah. know? And also, I just, um, you know, I thought, if, I guess I still believed in the dream that you'll get married and you'll have a family and you'll have a good life and have a little house and stuff. Mm. But it didn't work out because um, this guy was rather abusive, too, physically abusive. So, right. um, But I had a child with him. I had my daughter, mm. Catherine. Melinda Catherine is her name. And, and um, so that's a good thing that came out of that. And uh, while I was married to him, I got my GED, which is a, um, a, a graduation, the equivalent. It's a it's a high school equivalency diploma. Right. So you go for a couple of days and you take a lot of tests. And if you pass them, you get this diploma, which would do for employers. If you needed a high school education, they would accept a GED. Right. So that was a big step for me. And then um, you must have been very proud when you got that. I was very proud. It was like a big hurdle because I knew that I was so hampered by having not finished high school. Yeah. And um, it was just um, I, I couldn't do anything without a high school education. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I could wait tables, but I wanted more. I yes. just always wanted. It seemed to me like. Like I said before, there were the real people who lived in the world, and then there was us who had been kept separate. And um, I always wanted to be like the real people. I wanted to know things, and I wanted to kind of be a part of the world bigger than I. And um, So that must have felt huge, and getting the GED opened the door to all that. Yes, it did, sort of, yes. Mm. And then... Uh, 
So I divorced Siri eventually, and, and uh, after that, my mother had died some years ago, and Daddy was dating a lot of women. <laughs> Daddy was Daddy was very much a a womanizer at that point. Right. Yeah, and he would bring these women over to my apartment and try to get me to take them and like them, etc. I don't know why he needed me to do that. Did it to my brother too. Mm. And we both really hated it and didn't want any part of it. And so um, I was just very sad, unemployed, decided I just wanted to get the hell out of there. Mm. And so I wrote to a friend of mine who I'd met along the way from Rhode Island. And, and I had another friend in Colorado um, and I wrote to both of them and said, I really want out of here. Mm. I want to get out of the South. I want to get out of Daddy's reach. I want, and the one in uh, Colorado said, oh, I said, please send me the newspaper, want ads, housing, let me see what it's like. You mm. know? And the one in Colorado said, oh, don't come here. I've only job I've found is painting candles. <laughs> <laughs> Well, someone's got to do it. <laughs> and and the friend in Rhode Island said, hey, come up here. You can stay with me until you get settled. And it looked like a very good offer because mm. there was were jobs there. And Whereabouts is Rhode Island? I'm just, just trying to remind, refresh my geography memory. Okay, go way up from New York. Do you know where New York is? Yes. Okay. So it's, it's, it's above go. New York on the East Coast. Yes, it's just under Massachusetts. Gotcha. Okay. And I knew, but some people at home might not remember. Oh, of course. <laughs> oh, yes, Chris. <laughs> Obviously, I knew. Um, no, that's great. So yeah. Rhode Island. Rhode Island, yes. And so you thought you didn't want to paint candles. No. So Rhode <laughs> Island Rhode was <laughs> good. And the company, a security company that I had been working for at um, NASA, Wackenhut Corporation, had an office there. Mm. And so I applied and I was hired as sort of a secretary, making practically no money. And here are we talking now? Yeah. 1974, I think. And I wanted to get a bicycle for mm. my daughter. And there was an ad in the paper that said there was a bicycle sale at a Unitarian Universalist church. So I was intrigued by that. And after a few months, I went over to that church. That's where I met my Jean, my next husband. Mm. And that was... So Jean's Jean's husband number three. Yes, and Jean had he had a PhD and was a a, a senior research biochemist for the wow. US EPA in um, at Narragansett Bay in Rhode Island, mm. <laughs> and I had my GED and a good supply of blue eyeshadow. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I was not hard to look at I at that time, back in my youth. And um, he just kept hanging around me, and I really wasn't interested in him because he just wasn't tall, dark, and handsome, or, you know, he was just kind of <laughs> kind of ordinary. And, but he used to invite me to things that I really wanted to see. Mm. I'd never been to... Uh, like a real concert. One night he took me to Newport to a Livingston Taylor concert. I was so taken. I was thrilled. I just loved it. To Newport. Newport, Rhode Island. Is that the place? That's where. Is that where Dylan went electric? Yes, yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, but um, he had. I knew he was probably interested just from the way he kept coming around, but. He hadn't made any kind of move. Mm. But that night at that concert, we were sitting there, and he very clumsily threw his arm over my shoulder. Did he do the yawn? Yeah. The, oh, and then the put yarn. the arm around? Yeah. yeah gotcha. And, <laughs> it's classic. It's textbook. <laughs> and I was kind of like, ooh, <laughs> I don't want that. But So he came back again and wanted to take me to the theater. We had a wonderful off-Broadway theater, Tony winning mm. theater there in Providence. And he wanted, I'd never been to the theater. 
and I really wanted to go. Mm. And um, so he, I agreed to go. He took me to. So you, you sound like you were reluctant because you didn't want to lead him on. Right. But I you think, wanted to go. Yeah, right. Gotcha. Right. Right. And um, <clears throat> so we went to see a doll's house by Ibsen. Wow. And I remember sitting there watching, and I was just enthralled with what was happening on the stage. And yet I realized he was always looking at me. He was not watching the theater as much, I mean, the stage as much as it felt like he was watching me. It was mm. a little distracting, but no. yeah. But now, you know, I, I learned later after we were married, and we had a wonderful marriage, but... You know, he was just, he was very curious about someone like me who did not have any formal education. Mm. And yet, I was smart. And I didn't really, I mean, I knew I could figure things out, but I didn't think of myself as being a very smart person. But um, it was with him that I discovered I was, you know. Mm. One night we sat down and, and he had come to visit me again. This time, just knocked on the door and showed up. He was, I had been off somewhere to a conference, coming home from the airport. You're on the way. I'll just. <laughs> so he came in, and I said, "You know, Gene. Oh, we always brought a bottle of gin." With him. <laughs> <laughs> I said, "You know, Gene, you're a very nice man, but I said, I really would like to get married again someday, and have a family." And I said. If you keep coming around, everyone's going to think we're a couple and nobody's going to approach. And he said very petulantly, well, I want to get married too. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, to me? And he said, well, I don't know. Maybe. And he said, um, I said, well, you don't really know me. He said, no, well, let's talk about it. So we took the bottle of gin, and we went and sat down on the carpet in my living room. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. and he said, okay, this is who I am. And basically he told me about his upbringing, his childhood. And he said, and this is my job, and this is how much money I make, and this is what I own, and this is, um, and he had two children, and he and his wife had been legally separated mm. for several years. And so um, and so, I then told him what mine was, and I had a bank balance of maybe $10 at mm. that point. <laughs> but I said, but what, what do you believe in? What is important to you? So we got into principles and values and, and hopes and dreams and and things that were not acceptable and things that were and learned about, you know, each other. And mm. we decided that evening after the bottle of gin was getting pretty low <laughs> <laughs> that we thought we had the makings of a, a good coupling because we did want the same things and our values were aligned and our principles were there. And mm. so I said, but I don't love you. And he said, well, I don't love you either. <laughs> I said, so. He Did said, you believe him that he didn't love you? Yeah, I knew he was attracted to me, but it was too early for loving, I sure. think. You know, I knew he was attracted. I knew he was very interested because he was interested in my mind. He was thinking, who is this person? Because I had a bookshelf in my apartment with lots of books. And he said, who read these books? And, and you haven't got a high school education? And I said, yeah. He said, you watch Monty Python and you haven't got high school education. And I said, yeah. You know, I said, do you eat with a fork? What? <laughs> <laughs> and so he said, well, let's give it, let's try for six months. Mm. Let's spend time together for six months and see what develops. And if at the end of that time we don't feel that we want to be together, we'll end it. And if not, then we should think about getting married. Mm. So that's what we did. And it was um, it was rough for the first while, especially blending kids mm. when they're teenagers. But oh, did he have? Two. Uh, mm -hmm. And how old were they when you? Uh, Robin was 16 and Clifford was 13. Yeah. Right. 
and um and so jonathan and belinda melinda melinda i beg your pardon so jonathan and melinda she and was um she was can't remember i think she was 11 or 12 mm. and he would have been maybe 15. right so i had been a strict disciplinarian mm. and he wasn't at all and so it was a little difficult to juggle that at first yeah but it grew, imagine. you know, it grew, and uh, we did love each other. But after we had six months, we moved in together without benefit of marriage. Mm. But there was the University of Rhode Island very nearby, and he said, um, why don't you go back to school? You want, you know, information so much. You want to learn. Mm. And I said, he said, you could go to URI. And I said, I can't do that. I don't have a high school diploma or education mm. I, you know i can't go to college without and he said yes you can and uh he said why don't and i was very reluctant he said why don't you take a summer course and see what happens mm. and then if you like it feel you can do it then you can work on matriculating with someone who had the thirst for knowledge that you clearly did, mm -hmm. why do you think you were reluctant? I thought it was probably beyond me. I wanted it, but I just, it was like dreaming for, you know, a gold mine. It mm. was it was beyond what I could do, I thought. So <clears throat> I, uh, I agreed, and I took a summer course in, I'd always been interested in writing, so I took mm. a summer course in, one in creative writing, and then I added one in, in um, political science, John Stuart Mill and all those guys. And I just said to myself, all I have to do is make a C because a C is an average grade. And if I can make a C, that means I'm just normal and I can, <laughs> I can be mm. there. And at the end of the semester, I had A's in both courses. Oh, my God, oh, really? I was, oh, I was walking on clouds. Yeah. It was That's incredible, fantastic. incredible. Oh, you have no idea how I felt. It was, gosh, it was just unbelievable. Everything I'd ever wanted was now within my reach, yeah. you know? And then Brown University's in Providence. It's mm. one of the Ivy League schools. And Jean said, why don't you apply? I said, they're not going to accept me, I'm sure. But he said... You've come so far. Why not apply? Mm. So um, I did. I asked for recommendations from some of my professors. You know, one professor wrote, Linda's the kind of student you would pay to have in your classroom. Wow. <laughs> that was so flattering. But it was because I asked a lot of questions. Mm. And <clears throat> I did apply to Brown. I'll never forget opening that envelope when oh the mail came God. one day. You know, you're afraid to open the envelope. Of course, yeah. And Jean was at work. And so I got him on the phone and I said, the letter is here. He <laughs> said, did you open it? I said, no. And he said, open it, open it. So you take the seal away mm. and then it's folded up and I kind of lifted the first slap. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't see anything other than my name. And then I moved the other one and said, Congratulations. Like, oh, I didn't have to read any further. <laughs> Congratulations. Oh. You've been accepted. Wow. And now I'm going to an Ivy League school, in graduate school. I mean, I mean, if you just if you look at it just in black and white, yeah. from where you came yeah. to where you to where you end up. Yeah. That's astonishing achievement, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. It is. It is incredible. Yeah. My life has been I feel like there's so many chapters to it, like the early religious and then the stumbling around through the years of mm. divorce and marriage and unhappiness and then to find this world. And it was all through Gene, mm. my husband, Gene Jackham. He was fabulous at having faith in me. He thought, I mean, I really got the feeling, he thought, I could do anything. Mm. And he encouraged me. It was like it was like um 
I don't know what was it. I was I was just something he wanted to see. How much more can you do? And so he was always there to support me and it's, encourage. It, it sounds almost like in those early days that he could see something in you that you hadn't realized was there yourself That's yet. right. That's right. That's wonderful. That's right. And um, had he not seen it and and encouraged me to develop mm. it, then I wouldn't have, I guess. It makes you wonder how many people there are who have those kind of abilities and who have that, who it's who they don't meet the right people and it's not nurtured right. in the right way. Right. But but thank God for Gene. Yes. That's fine. And, and for you, that's such an achievement. Yeah. I can't, I can't imagine that just... The day you get the letter from the Ivy League <laughs> College, you know. Ah, that's I incredible. Still, I still think about it and just feel that overwhelming joy. Yeah. Just, I just couldn't. I went around the house all afternoon. Jean came home and it was like <laughs> I was walking around with my mouth open. I can't believe it. I'm in the... Oh, well, anyway. But now there's a darker side. Okay. Shall we go there or shall we... life is full of what ifs some awesome like what if ai could fold your laundry and some well less awesome like what if you have unexpected medical costs united healthcare can help get you covered with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans they supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Through this time, uh, and for some time before, as I said, going through the hard times when I was still in Huntsville, Mm. And I felt like I often used very poor judgment. I didn't feel I could rely on on myself sometimes to be, I don't know, to be right somehow. Mm. And I would have very dark times, moods, and then uh, then the joyous ones as well. But I one time um, after Jean and I were married, and I just. I just got very depressed mm. for whatever. It was just, it's chemical. I didn't realize then what was wrong, but um, I was just in bed and I couldn't, just couldn't make myself get up and, mm. and go. And, ha- and Jean said, I see a pattern here, you know. And he said, I think I know what the problem is. He said, would you like to go to the psychiatric hospital mm. and Providence and I said yes yes because I I knew that something was going on that I wasn't in control of and and it wasn't circumstantial and I wanted it fixed so there was a nice wonderful private hospital private psychiatric hospital Butler Hospital in Providence Mm. and so he drove me there one afternoon and I went in for some testing you know and they said that we believe you have bipolar disorder. And so people think it's really strange, but I said that was a day that really changed a lot of things for me. I understood after learning this and getting to know yeah. why I had been in those moods and places and feeling that I didn't control them mm. because I learned about bipolar and it was it's a chemical 
um, Very much so. deficiency in the brain. And so I was admitted to Butler Hospital, and I was there for five weeks. And while they, the first line of treatment was lithium, and so I started you know, on lithium, and they have to measure your yeah. blood and keep track for a while. Now this is while I was still I was going to Brown. It was my so my you first still, year in Brown. So you were still so so you had five weeks. Were you residential? Were you staying at the hospital? For yes. Five weeks? Right. However, <laughs> I said I don't want to miss all that school at mm. Brown because this is very important to me. And it wasn't like I was crazy, can't be let out to do anything. I just had to be there to be monitored. Etc. So I asked permission to bring my car to Butler, and so I drive myself to classes and then come back. Mm. And they agreed. So I would get out. They would unlock the door for me because it was a locked ward. They would unlock the door, let me out, go to my classes, and then I would come back and knock on the door, and they would let me in. And <laughs> <laughs> so while I was going to Brown, I was also locked up in the psychiatric hospital. Yeah. And I've always wondered if I was the only person who attended both at the same time. I, do you know what? <laughs> I, I like to think so. I, I would, you know, there's this. Who wants to be like everyone else? <laughs> right. Well. My professors knew because I had I'd been very honest with them, and I said, mm. you know, I've been diagnosed with this, and I have to stay and get the treatment in order, and I'd I'd like to come, and so they allowed me to do that, and um, so I I was able to finish that, you know, the, but it was fun. I mean, be, <laughs> sounds ridiculous, but being locked up in the psychiatric ward was really a lot of fun. Because because I wasn't that sick. Yeah. I wasn't sick. I had to be there to to uh, get treatment sorted out. Yeah. yeah, but it was so funny. There was people came in who really were sick, and <laughs> I remember Jean used to bring me bottles of Pepsi Cola. I at that time I really liked it, so he'd bring me big bottles of Pepsi, and I put. We had a refrigerator in a little kitchen that we could all use, kind of like community room. And my bottles of Pepsi started disappearing, and I couldn't figure out what was happening. And then someone told me one day, he said, Jesus is pouring out your Pepsi. And I said, what? And there was a patient who had come in, and she was she was a real sweetheart, but she was really delusional and yeah. out of it. And she thought she was Jesus, and so people just called her Jesus. Because, because it's easier that, than that was her identity. And she thought Pepsi was bad for me, so every time I'd get a bottle, she'd take it and pour it in the sink. Oh my word! <laughs> there were other things. It was just, it was just one adventure. It's. Did you find the? Because um, just uh, as a as a side note, it was interesting that as you've been talking, I'd begun to recognise what I thought you might be about to say. Oh really? Yeah, I've I've got bipolar disorder. Oh, you have! Yeah. Oh, wow! So, and it, so, and, and so, I was. It was getting to the point where I was thinking, I think she's going to tell me that she had bipolar disorder. <laughs> How far back did you think that? Um, it was when you were. It was the thirst for knowledge as well as the first dark time, because that's the kind of you know. There's, yeah. there's that kind of yeah. that effervescent thirst. Yes, we're in very good company. I think so too. We are. I remember I mean, when, when you, you talk. When if you, you look at all the people. Through history, you've had bipolar disorder. It's well, very exactly. Good they're all the, they're the, four slash the best ones. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when you talked about enjoying it at your yeah uh, and seeing the different kind of the people out, I remember when I was first diagnosed in Manchester, I went to this clinic. I was kind of hoping it would be full of really good, crazy people. Yeah. <laughs> and I was remember being really disappointed. It was all just full of heroin addicts who were there for their <laughs> trimazepine. I thought, oh. This is, <laughs> And then the first day I was sat in the waiting room and a guy came in dressed as a pirate. I thought, there, yeah, finally, a proper crazy person. And I was, I was so happy. <laughs> so like a, free, a genuine, oh, brilliant. That's what I've been waiting for, this guy. It was, it was ages, you know. But, um, we, had some, we had some 
other really good ones that I enjoyed. There was a man there named Herb, and he was he was an older man, mm. past retirement, I think. And he was there very angry and depressed, but he was brilliant. <laughs> he had, you know, had tons of education mm. and, and I think had been a professor. But he, would, there's a blackboard that patients can write on, you know, there's whatever. And Herb was at the blackboard just about every day doing these. They're very complicated algebraic uh, equations mm. and things. And he filled the whole board. And I said, Herb, what is it? What, have you, what, is, what is this about? And he said, it's about happiness. And I said, happiness? <laughs> yes. He said, this equation is about finding happiness. And I said, well, did you find it? He said, yes, it's orange. <laughs> Oh my God! You know what happened? He forgot to carry the four. That's what they were so. It's so simple. <laughs> I'm just trying to think now. If that kind of makes sense, I can kind of see what he meant. It's orange. Yeah. Well, and then one night, you know, they had a van, and they would take those of us who were, you know, who we could be taken out. Mm. To um, on outings, and we went to a movie one night, and there were maybe. Uh, 12 of us yeah. in a group with one supervisor there. And we went into the movie, and there were we, we needed to sit together. The supervisor just wanted us all to be together. Yeah. And there were no rows that had that many together. Yeah. <laughs> so she's standing there wondering what to do. And so I said to these people that were sitting there, I said, excuse me, we're from the psych ward on an outing, and we need to be seats. And they moved. So once you finish your five-week stint at, uh, on, the, mm -hmm. on the site ward, how did things progress at Brown? Well, <clears throat> after, that, uh, after that semester was over, so I'd completed my full first year, mm. and my major advisor called me in and said, we think we would like for you to take a leave of absence just to get yourself all steady and back together. And then... And then come back and mm. finish. You know, there's no prejudice. Just so I was a little disappointed at that, yeah. but um, I accepted it. And said okay. <clears throat> so during the time that I was on my leave of absence, that was actually I think '82, and I didn't because I started Brown in '81, so that would have been '82, mm. and <clears throat> I didn't go back to finish until '87. Wow. But during that time, I worked, um, I got a job in radio as a really? news announcer and radio reporter. Really? Yeah. Yeah, there was one in the town. I was in a small station. Yeah. But, <clears throat> was it a K was, or a W? It was <laughs> WMYD, We Make Your Day. Oh, hey. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, I, that was very interesting work. I got to do things like cover murder trials and and I was sent wow. I was sent to cover the America's Cup races. Yeah. And that was the year that Dennis Connor lost to the Australians. Wow. And I, I was there to see it. And then I went to newspaper and I worked as a newspaper reporter and I had that job for several years until I then I went back to Brown, to Brown like in '87, and I finished my work and uh, received my degree. And well, Jean died in 2006, which is very sad. But um, and I stayed in Rhode Island until 2008. Then I, I 2009 actually, I moved back to Huntsville because my brothers were there, the two that are still living. Yeah, and. Huntsville, uh, Alabama. Yes. Yeah. And um, they were saying, come back and uh, we're getting old. Get old together. <laughs> and I decided I would. Also, the living was cheaper there, even though at that point I had a pension and 
Mm. But um, I moved back. So you're in your early 60s at this point. Is that right? Yes, yeah. yes. And so then I was I realized I'm very lonely living there with all my friends I've made 30 years and here I am, what have I done? Mm. And so, I mean, you can't just be with your brothers every minute. They have lives, too. Mm. <laughs> so uh, I decided I wanted to find some company, some male company, and I went online and got on Match.com. Mm. And that's where I met my current husband, Hal. Uh, yeah, I met Hal at Match.com, and that was great. And so... I've always loved the name Hal. Is it, what's it short for? Is it? Is it? His name is Halsey. Halsey? Yeah, like Admiral Halsey. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and it runs through his family like, you know... Oh, like a, a family name that everyone yeah, has. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they, and he passed it to his son, Halsey II. Yeah. He didn't want him to be junior. He's his second. Paul's his second. I like that. Yeah. Um, so we married, and um, Hal. Which would make this, by the way, husband number five. Yes. He's husband number four. Four. I had Joe, Terry, Jean, and uh, Hal. Of course, I do beg your pardon. I've credited you with an extra husband. Forgive I had me. five marriages because yeah. I married the moon one twice. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> Anyway, but um, so he was a professor, uh, uh, taught uh, English literature mm. and French. And so I thought, wow, this is wonderful. Jean was in sciences, health and the arts. I'll get benefit of <laughs> both ends of the spectrum. <laughs> and so we fell in love. And... Um, Hal loves to read, and he loved to read travel books. He's always been in love with Greece since he was an undergraduate. Mm. He just um, always read Greek philosophy, Greek history, all the all the ancient Greek things. And um, so one year we were visiting his sister who lived in Germany, mm. and he said, "Let's go over to Greece for a week," and because he had read. Patrick Lee Fermer's yes. travel books, and he wanted to. Uh, he said he went everywhere, and he he built a home in Carthamili, so it must be a really special place. Mm. So we came for a week to Carthamili, and loved it so much. We came back the next year for two months, and decided to live here forever. So he went back home and retired, mm. and we got an extension for our visa for in the month of August. Came back in September, started working on our residence permit. We've been here ever since, except for we go home for holiday. I can't believe my life. I started in little shacks, and here I am living in Greece, living a dream. You really are. It sounds, it's, yeah, it's amazing. I really am. It's, it sounds like a bipolar life. Yes, it because does. Of, because of, you Doesn't know, the, the highs and... The achievements and the and the you know just the fizzing electricity yes, yes. of of all the stuff that you've done. Yes, yes. You and that's the beauty of it. You know, that's you get back to look. You get to look back on a life that's rocketed left and right and up and down. Yeah. And you know, you've got stuff to look back on. Yeah. My God. A lot. An awful lot. Yeah. Now, I mean. The first part of my life was extremely hard, very mm. rough. Uh, before before I met Jane, everything was was very difficult, mm. and I was having the moods and didn't understand for a while. And then it's like everything just opened up with with college and with learning mm. and with with a good supportive husband. And then now to Hal who loves me very much, and mm. I love him, and here we are living in Greece and enjoying every minute of it. And that was Linda. I'm so grateful she decided to share her life story. It was amazing stuff. Before we finish, a few weeks ago, you heard the fantastic Phyllis Lovett's life story. She came from Bethnal Green of Italian parents. 
We spoke recently and she mentioned that when she listened to the recording, she was concerned that there wasn't any mention of her wonderful son Alan and all the things that he does for her. I explained that she actually had mentioned him when we spoke, but I have to be a bit selfish sometimes and cut bits out of the final edit, just so I can cram as many fascinating stories into each podcast as I can. So, just for the record, this episode of Two Cups of Tea is officially dedicated to Phyllis's son, Alan. And in fact, all the kids and grandkids of my guests who occasionally get snipped out of the final cut. I'm sure none of you will really mind, all things considered. As you'll have just heard, this podcast is about sharing some fantastic life stories. But there are well over a million chronically lonely people in the UK who have no one to share their life stories with. If you'd like to know more about ways to change this, then please go online and visit campaigntoendloneliness.org and find out how together we can make loneliness a thing of the past. Thanks again to Linda, and also thanks to Acast for hosting this show. See you next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.